I really like our call. I think that that's probably a sensible view for what the Fed is thinking and what they're going to do. That no rate cuts eminently, so we don't see, in our view, that no policy easing in the first half of 2024, and then they start to say probably by the middle of the year they start to signal that okay they're more confident. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the FX Factor podcast. Uh, this time around, we're going to go into uh, a deeper dive into the U.S., especially since we've had some meaningful data and comments out from uh, Fed speakers of late. And uh, we're going to talk to one of our uh, premier economists who knows a thing or two about the U.S. economy, about what that means for the Federal Reserve, not just for the upcoming meeting in January, but on balance for 2024. Before we begin, of course, got to welcome Ali Jaffrey back to the podcast. Ali, welcome back. You know, my condolences for the Eagles. I know you're a massive fan. As uh, some of us Leaf fans say up here, uh, is always next year. Now I know what it feels like to be a Giants fan. So uh, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. <laughs> right on, right on. So let's jump right into you know some of the things that we saw this week and also what we heard this week. And again, you know, given his, I guess, increasing prominent role as a bellwether for the Federal Reserve, I mean, what do you make of what you know Governor Christopher Waller said earlier this week? Was there anything that he said that stuck out to you? Yeah, I think it was a good speech. I think it really reflects probably the pulse of the committee right now. There's a lot of confusion, obviously, after the December FOMC and the fairly dovish tone that Powell struck and all the walking back from Williams and other FOMC members. I think I think Waller really speaks for the heart of the committee as it is now. And clearly he was you know, pushing back at the need for eminent policy easing, which I think is sensible, but also praising the progress uh, of inflation. So I think those are important points. And also I think he clarified the FOMC's view on financial conditions where Powell was asked in the presser, what he thought about, you know, the easing in financial conditions. And he seemed fairly dismissive of that. And markets walked away in the sense that, you know, the Fed has kind of walked back from this important pillar that they laid out. But Waller kind of clarified that in, in, in a sensible way where he said, look, financial conditions remain restrictive. They're about the same where they were, you know, a few months prior, essentially is implicitly saying that, you know, we're looking at the long end of the curve as our, our main gauge of financial conditions. So I think that was an important point. Another important point that he mentioned was, you know, the Fed is or that I infer from this, the Fed remains very data dependent. They say that all the time, but he laid out one important marker I don't think is being talked about is in February, the CPI revisions. He he brought up uh, last year that when the CPI revisions came out, seasonal factors show that inflation was much higher than what they thought. So I think the Fed is waiting for that to see is the full picture of an inflation that they've seen on CPI side. Is that what how the data has come out or could there be some changes to that? So the Fed is really looking at where, how data is evolving. They're more patient and they want to have markets kind of understand that their reaction function hasn't changed as dramatically despite that press conference from Powell. I want to back up a little bit and talk about financial conditions and the way maybe some Fed members view them a little bit different than maybe Waller does. But, you know, especially us on the on the private side and what we try to discern what the Federal Reserve is, is talking about with respect to financial conditions, we all watch the same things. You know, we, we've seen the dollar decline. We've seen front-end yields move lower. And we've seen the equity market take off over the last couple of months. Why is Waller placing a little bit more emphasis on the long end of the curve and, and really relying on that to say that financial conditions remain restrictive when, you know, some of the other, you know, markers of financial conditions would suggest uh, otherwise? Likely the main reason is that 
the influence of the long end of the curve on activity is the greatest of all of those things that you mentioned. So other measures of financial conditions, more prominent ones, place a greater weight on the equity market, for example. But really, that doesn't have a strong actual weight in activity, you know, depending on how you assess the impact of changes in equity prices on GDP. So I think that's probably the main reason why. And, and intuitively, that makes sense to me, given you know, the role of the long end of the curtain influencing the mortgage market. Corporate borrowing is typically follows that for long end of the curve more. So I think that's sensible. Measuring financial conditions and, and its impulse and the impact on the economy is challenging and, you know, it's hard to know with a high degree of precision. But my guess would be similar to Waller's that if we're going to put emphasis on something, it should be on that end of the curve in the U.S. Okay, and you know something else that you mentioned uh, that Waller spoke to was the you know, the revisions that we've had lower in some important bits of data, including non-firms. But you know we're, we're recording this on Thursday, the day after we received a, a pretty strong retail sales report, and you know one of the notable bits from that was that the control group uh, segment of the retail sales report suggested the street, at least forecasting it going in, had it completely wrong and that the consumer was far more resilient. Uh, on top of that, we did get a revision higher for the prior month as well. I mean, how do you how do you interpret that? Uh, firstly, you know, why is it that the U.S. consumer remains so resilient? And, you know, is Waller wrong with respect to what he's thinking for in terms of Q4 growth going forward? I think the Fed has in general, and, and Waller included, hasn't given the strength of the consumer enough attention. And... We've seen a number of upside surprises on retail sales and consumption in general, and the Fed hasn't given us a clear view on how they think about it. Rather, they mostly talk about when we see strong growth, most of which is from consumption, they've spoken about the strength of the supply side of the economy and attributed some of that to the underlying performance in the labor market being strong. But I think there's something more to that. Kind of in the short term, one factor I think is the strength in real wages and real income is a consequence of the labor market, yes, remaining firm, but inflation falling quite rapidly over the past quarter and a bit. So that's one, I think, near-term explanation that could help us understand why the momentum in consumption is, is strong. The big point is why the level of consumption remains so high, given all of the shocks that we've seen, all these various supply shocks and the dissipation of these supply shocks and the rapid changes in monetary policy. And there, I think we need to kind of take several steps back and try to understand what has happened to the U.S. consumer. And I, I think there are, in my head, there are two theories. One is that there's been some important changes in the post-pandemic environment. You know, significant chunk of the labor, of the prime age labor force, according to Nick Bloom and all the surveys that they've done, is working from home. You know, this is not the majority, but there's, you know, 15 to 20 percent of prime age workers who are working from home two to three days a week in the U.S. And they could be geographically located in some of the main cities in the U.S. and have higher weight and activity. And their consumption patterns have likely shifted. There's also been a lot of discussion about changes in people's work-life balance in, in the post-pandemic environment. And I think these things are resulting in a tilt towards more demand for durable goods. And if you just plot the level of durable goods, you see that it's incredibly resilient. And that's not ex ante what we would expect, given not only restrictive monetary policy, but also that durable goods typically follow a lumpy cycle. You don't need to buy a computer every quarter. You know, there's a pull up and then there's a pullback. Uh, and we haven't seen any of that. And I think some of this is people staying at home more often, 
you know, enjoying uh, life at home to some extent and consuming more durable goods, either to support their work needs or greater leisure needs. That's one theory. And another theory is, given this might be the influence actually of monetary policy, kind of a countervailing effect that given the impact on the housing market and people are not able to afford houses because of high interest rates and constrained supply, that monetary policy is making it difficult for builders to ramp up. The household consumption budget has widened as people are more comfortable staying in their homes or renting uh, and allocating more toward durable good consumption. I'm not sure if these forces are outweighing, you know, the, the typical income and saving dynamics that emanate from the labor market. But, you know, I put some weight on the former of some post-pandemic change in preferences and habits. That's only way for me to really reconcile the trend of online sales and durable goods in an environment where monetary policy is very restrictive. And I would hope now that the Fed, after, you know, multiple releases, and more or less, I would say, dismissing most of it, uh, would give us a clue in how they think about it and what are the underlying drivers of consumption. Is it some of these kind of special factors that I mentioned, or do they really think it's actually it's the labor market that's driving mo- most of this, that changes in real disposable income are, explain this underlying strength in the U.S. consumer? You know, so you mentioned several factors that are very important for the resiliency of, uh, of consumer spending that we're seeing in the United States. What does that leave us tracking in terms of Q4 GDP? I mean, we, we just had a, a Q3 numbers that was exceptionally strong in the United States, but in all accounts, we're tracking north of 2% for Q4. What does the recent uh, retail sales number alongside some of the other numbers that we've received tell you how the U.S. economy did in Q4 of last year? Yeah, so our tracking now is at 2.5% annualized for Q4. Before retail sales, and we were around 1.9%, so just under 2%. So that's a very strong number, especially when you're coming off around a 5% growth in Q3. And the handoff from this to Q1 is also going to be strong. So we're going to have three quarters of very robust growth, well above Typical estimates of potential output. I know Powell in one of the press conferences, I also believe that was in December, mentioned that potential could have been higher and short measure of short-term potential could be higher. So, But that to me doesn't really add up. I, I don't believe that U.S. potential growth would be in and around these growth rates. That would imply either dramatic shift in the TLI component or the TFP component. That doesn't add up to me. So I think we're in a period of growth being above potential. And the Fed having to rely on the view of flat Phillips curve view, that is, you know, changes in slack at this point now don't have large implications for inflation. That might be one way to think about it. But we are definitely in a period of, of high growth in Q4 and, and likely to see some of that continue in Q1. If the supply side doesn't keep, uh, keep pace with that uh, inherently, doesn't that mean we're sort of troughing here when it comes to inflation or at least the improvement in, in progress that we've seen in the, in the eyes of not just the Federal Reserve, but other central banks as well? I mean, do, doesn't that sort of shift the, the balance of risks going forward, at least for the next couple of months and maybe even the next uh, couple of quarters in terms of uh, you know, where we see inflation dynamics playing out from here? I think it does. So it's it's a bit of a complicated situation in the U.S. So when you look at activity, yes, clearly that looks like there's some excess demand in the economy. And as a consequence, you should see some inflationary pressure and the risk should be on, tilted to the upside. It, you know, you might think, like I just mentioned, that the relationship between slack and inflation is weak. So maybe it's not that big of a hedge. But, 
you know, that's definitely pointing in that direction that you mentioned. But then when we look at the labor market, it's painting a slightly different picture where you're seeing a rebalancing happening in the labor market. The unemployment rate has risen a bit. It's around three. It's at three seven. It was actually at three nine and kind of pulled back a little bit. But that's not far from estimates of the natural rate of unemployment. John Williams at the New York Fed said three uh, three seven five is kind of his estimate of of U-Star. The committee is a little bit north of that, but we're moving in the direction of getting the economy to balance and possibly a little bit into excess supply. The job vacancy rate is is coming down. Uh, We've seen the quits rate, an important indicator of you know, people switching jobs to to uh, take advantage of higher wages. That has normalized. So the labor force participation rate is now around where the CBO's long-run trend is, so this what we call the participation rate, rate gap is now closed. So when I look at the labor market, I see the economy clearly coming into balance, and I see the Fed has put more weight on this. But you know, with the level of spending I, on balance, I think even when I take that into account, yes, probably there's some upside risk from domestically induced inflation. But when I look globally, there's other factors that mitigate against that. So we've seen an improvement in global supply chain disruptions based on that New York Fed index measure, deflation in China, uh, weaker global aggregate commodity prices. So all of that kind of mitigates against some of these possible price pressures coming from animal spirits, strong U.S. consumer appetite, whatever you want to call it. So the Fed in some way seems like in a good place where they can tolerate a bit of this, but I do think they need to understand what's going on in the U.S. consumer's mind and what's driving that to be confident of that. Okay, so this is the part uh, where I get to hold your your feet to the fire. What do you think the Fed is going to do in, uh, in a couple of weeks when it deliberates? You know what? I really like our call. I think that that's probably a sensible view for what the Fed is thinking and what they're going to do, that no rate cuts eminently. So we don't see, in our view, that no policy easing in the first half of 2024. And then they start to say, probably by the middle of the year, they start to signal that, okay, they're more confident, that inflation is sustainably at their target, as they've, they've mentioned. And in the second half of the year, they start to ease. You know, we right now have penciled in four cuts. And I think that's kind of consistent with also what Waller said, or another important point that, that the Fed won't be in a rush necessarily to ease, unlike other past cycles where there have been negative shocks and they've been forced to ease. We, like many others, expect that the U.S. economy will basically a soft landing, that we won't see a significant disruption to activity. That view is fairly well confirmed after the data yesterday. So I think you know that's a sensible view for where the Fed is going to go. And right now, I think they genuinely don't know. They're very data dependent, as I mentioned. But if the data comes in as we expect, and I think it's not far from what they expect, the second half of 2024 seems like a reasonable time when they would begin. Okay. And uh, do you want to delve a little bit into Canada and what uh, do you think the Bank Canada is uh, looking at right now and what uh, our expectations are for them for this year? Yeah. So the bank, I think, is in a more complex situation. Canada hasn't seen the favorable inflation readings like you've seen in the U.S. I put a lot of weight on you know, the supply shock view, what Trevor Tombe and a co-author from University of Calgary wrote a nice paper on that. And a lot of this is related to shelter inflation, which the bank has has recognized. But I think even beyond shelter inflation, I think supply shocks have had a big role in Canadian inflation. So I think the bank is wanting to see more progress on inflation uh, before they begin to, to deliberate 
any kind of policy easing. And I think our call is on the Bank of Canada is, is, is very sensible that similar to the Fed that we don't really have any policy easing in the first half of the year, but they ease more in the second half than the Fed. I think we have penciled in about six cuts in the second half. Uh, of 2024. And that's given the view that Canada is already clearly in excess supply conditions. Labor market in Canada is around or slightly above its natural rate of unemployment. Uh, And clearly activity is being held up by population growth. So the Canadian economy is in a fairly weak position. It's just that we haven't seen uh, inflation moderate, largely because of shelter inflation. But uh, I think the bank needs to see more progress on its preferred core measures and also some of its less preferred core measures. I think we we have a we have a good call in the bank as well. We should send out uh, what we're thinking in terms of quantitative tightening from the Federal Reserve and for the Bank of Canada. You know, at this point, you know, we have seen uh, at least north of the border some disruption in terms of uh, where Cora settles relative to Target. Uh, that, of course, uh, is a function of the fact that settlement balances uh, north of the border have been draining a little bit uh, quicker than we would have expected. Uh, but again, we don't think this uh, is a uh, function solely of the QT process. And my colleague Ian Pollock uh, has written a bit about this. So. If you do have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, south of the border in the United States, uh, we think the, you know, the developments or machinations are, are turning up somewhat differently. Uh, we do think that uh, we're getting closer and closer to the end of QT, or at least a slowing down of QT in the next couple of months. That, we feel, is not priced in uh, fully in uh, some of the uh, markets, including in the foreign exchange market. So, again, that forms the uh, the bulk of the reason why we're expecting the U.S. dollar to, to start declining towards the second half of this year. And, you know, before we get there, though, of course, you know, hearing from Ali, understanding what's priced into the market, and that, you know, maybe the market has the, the Fed priced a little bit wrong. So, again, you know, in the near term, we are expecting the U.S. dollar to appreciate before those second half uh, themes take over and we start to see the dollar decline in, on a meaningful basis. Finally, Ali, before I let you go, who's winning the Super Bowl this year? I hate to say it, but I think it's the Niners, man. Uh, <laughs> I hate to say it, and they deserve it. Yeah. Kyle Shanahan is a, is a stud of a coach. That's a great offense. All right. Uh, I like CMC, and I think the AFC is weak, man. <laughs> I really do. Well, well, we'll see, and I'm sure uh, some of our listeners that are Niners fans uh, will be happy with that call, I'm sure. But uh, until next time, have a good one. Cheers. The information and data contained here and has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets and to the extent that such information and data is based on sources outside CIBC Capital Markets, we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate, or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets Inc. and or any affiliate thereof shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the contents of this communication. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategy or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which different legal entities provide different services under this umbrella brand. Products and or services offered through CIBC Capital Markets include products and or services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and various of its subsidiaries. For more information about these legal entities and about the products and services offered by CIBC Capital Markets, please visit www.cibccm.com. Speakers on this podcast are not research analysts and this communication is not the product of any CIBC World Markets Inc. research department nor 
should it be construed as a research report. Speakers on this podcast do not have any actual, implied, or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issue or mention. The commentary and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individuals, except where the speaker expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Speakers may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to these instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC World Markets, Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice.